Welcome back to What You'll Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we are reviewing The Most Important Thing by Howard Marks, Uncommon Sense for the Thoughtful Investor. Howard Marks is a big, successful investor. He founded Oak Tree Capital Management in 1995 and currently got somewhere in the vicinity of 120-odd billion dollars of assets under management. So, He's a man who's controlling a lot of money. Yes, he's certainly a big dog in the financial world. And even though it's the book, his background is in finance, when it comes to investing and especially investing philosophy, which what this book is all about, you can apply this to a whole bunch of different areas, especially when it comes to things like time and energy and not just money when you're making some uh, thoughtful decisions. Yeah, he says that this book is not a how-to book about investing whatsoever in that there's no step-by-step instructions, there's no valuation formulas. Really, he says this book is about a way to think. So, he's trying to help people make more good decisions and avoid the common pitfalls that so many people fall into. Now, even though the book is called The Most Important Thing, there isn't just one important thing. There's actually 18 most important things in the book. So, he says they're all important because successful investing requires thoughtful attention to many separate aspects all at the same time. And if you omit just one of these aspects, then you might be actually cooked. Yeah, there's no one important thing ever. In whatever you do, there's a whole bunch of variables and they're all super important. So, he says that chapter one, the most important thing is second level thinking. Now, if you think about a lot of different things like investing, when you invest in a stock, you're buying, someone else is selling. So, in a sense, you're winning, someone else is losing. If you're at a bar and you're trying to get that 10 out of 10 or if you're just trying to land a job, a lot of the time it is competition. So, you are directly competing against everyone else in society. Now, if you actually want to go and do better than everyone else, like all of us assumedly do, that means you actually need to have some kind of edge on everybody else. Now, If everyone else is thinking a certain way, which is the consensus kind of point of view, to actually do better than everyone else, this is what second level thinking is. It's it's really appreciating the second order effects of what is actually happening in the world. Yeah, it's understandable that you don't want to just be average. You want to be above average. Like if you want to, if you're investing and you just think, oh, I just want to achieve average returns, then there's no point in going out and thinking about all these things. Just invest, uh, you know, passively. In, uh, in a managed fund where someone else is doing it and, and achieving average results. Obviously, the aim of investing is to achieve above average results. And in order to achieve above average results, Howard Marks says you need to think above average. So, you need to be thinking better than everybody else is thinking. And so, that's what he calls the difference between first level thinking, which is just the simple obvious thinking and second level thinking, which is obviously on the next level. So, one example might be a first level thinker says, this is a good company, let's buy the stock. The second level thinker would say, this is a good company, but everybody else thinks it's a great company, which it's not great, it's good. And because everybody thinks it's good, they're buying the stock, which means it's overrated and overpriced. So, the second level thinker might then say, let's sell. Yeah, that's it. So, the second level there, it's understanding like the first level, it is good, but it's taking into account what the consensus psychology is about that stock. So, it's actually a price above its intrinsic value about what it's actually meant to be. So, that is taking in account the, the second order of effects. Another example, which is the, the opposite, I guess, it, it might be, I think the company's earnings is going to fall, then sell. And that's what the first level thinking is. The second level thinking also says, I think the company's earnings will fall, 
but it's going to fall less than everybody else expects. So there'll be a pleasant surprise that will lift the stock in the future. So the effect of the investor psychology has influenced the price beyond what its intrinsic value is. Yeah, so that's in the world of investing, but this also might apply to, I guess, other areas of life as well. Because this book is about investment philosophy and decision-making, we can apply this first-level, second-level thinking to other things. So, perhaps a first-level thinker might say, my uncle is a lawyer and he's loaded, so I want to become a lawyer too and get rich. That would be the first level. But the second level would think, everybody thinks that lawyers are rich, so everybody wants to become a lawyer, which means there's more competition, there's more people trying to get into university, which means the cost of getting a law degree is actually overpriced. And because there's going to be so much competition for jobs, not everybody can get to the top and become rich. Another one, if I look at it through the context of, say, you know, if you're doing your job now, you might be five years in and you're thinking, all right, should I do an MBA? Now, an MBA has been really good for a lot of people for a very long time, but the consensus view is that the MBA is going to be the key for everyone to become a CEO. Now, if everybody out there is thinking like that, the actual cost of the MBA is going to go all the way up. And if you're actually trying to compete with these people, then that is first level thinking. You're not actually going to be able to to compete with that competition. Another one might be the first level thinker might say, software developers are going to own the future, so I'm going to learn to code. But the second level thinker might think, well, everybody is learning to code, so there's never going to be a shortage of coders. If I can learn to manage coders and manage a project, I could hire somebody for cheap to do the coding and instead of learning how to code, I'm going to learn how to manage. So, that might be the difference between a first-level thinker and a second-level thinker. So, the second-level thinker takes into account and asks questions like this, what does the consensus think? What's the probability that I'm right? And is the consensus psychology that's incorporated into the price too bullish or too bearish? In other words, too overconfident or underconfident? It's important not to just think here to be fully contrarian in doing the opposite of what everybody else thinks. That's not the goal here. The goal here is to think, what are all the first level thinkers thinking? As in, what's the simple and obvious thing that most people are going to be thinking about and hence most people are going to be acting on? And then what's the second order effects, as you said, or what's the second level? After all these people do what they do, what happens next? So not just thinking on the first level, but thinking on the second level. Now, the most important thing, number two, is understanding market efficiency and its limitations. Now, he kicks it off with the idea of what the efficient market hypothesis is. Now, this is the idea that there's so many traders out there working in the financial markets. They're all very motivated, very hardworking. They're highly educated. So, that means any single little piece of information that filters through is going to be immediately taken into account into the price of everything in the stock market and the bond market. Because there are so many people who are highly intelligent, they've all got their models, everybody knows pretty much the same information that's publicly available. Everybody's coming to similar conclusions in that there's a price that it should be. If it goes below, people are going to instantly buy it because it's underpriced and it'll go back up to where it should be. Or if it's overpriced, people are going to sell to get back to where it should be. So, people, so the efficient market hypothesis says that pretty much all the time, the market is right. Mm, so, if you're watching YouTube like I have this week <laughs> and saying, uh, you know, you see Tesla's thing and they're looking to compete with Uber and Lyft. 
in a few years are going to have like a million cars on the fleet, fully autonomous vehicles. So a lot of people watching that might be thinking, shit, I'm going to go out there and invest in Tesla because they've got this new thing coming in. But the efficient market hypothesis says that just because this is on YouTube, it means that this information about what Tesla is doing is actually immediately reflected in the price. So you're actually not going to buy Tesla a little bit cheaper with this information you saw on YouTube. So you might think because of the efficient market hypothesis that there's no point investing with active fund managers. Now, active fund managers, they're all about stock picking and market timing, thinking they're actually going to beat the market. They're doing all this research. But, you might, but with the efficient market hypothesis, what's the point? Because all the extra energy and time they're putting into to do all this study, it's, it's reflected anyway in the actual price. So you're actually wasting money in pouring fees into these active uh, active managers, so you're better off going with passive fund managers and investing in index funds instead. So Howard Mark says that yes, the efficient market hypothesis is a thing in that the consensus is efficient in the sense that it will always buy when things look cheap and sell when things are expensive. But he says that whilst they're mostly efficient and mostly correct, they're not always correct. So he says that there are some times when the market is actually wrong. And so that's the limitations of this efficient market hypothesis. One example he gives us is that in January 2000, Yahoo was trading at $237. And then in April 2001, it was trading at $11. So we're talking like a 23 times difference here, 22 times difference. He says that whilst it was efficient, there's no way that both times they could possibly be right. That in 2000, the market was correct that it was at 237 and then a year later, it was correct that it was 22 times less. So, he's saying that it's not possible that the market was right at both times. So, what he's getting at here is the efficient market hypothesis has the collective psychology which gets the actual intrinsic value of things wrong. So, you actually can beat the market um, by investing actively if you apply the idea of second-level thinking we were mentioning mentioning earlier because the second-level thinking depends on these inefficiencies of all the areas of all the many investors hard at work on one hand, but on the other hand, they're also driven by all these human emotions that get their psychology to miscalculate what the intrinsic value of uh, a stock is. So, the market is efficient in that it accurately captures the general consensus but Howard Marks is saying that it also captures everybody's greed, fear, envy, ego, all of these things are all built into the price. So, he says that whilst it is efficient, it's not always right and he says that for every person who gets a, a good buy, somebody else also gets a bad sell. So, there's ways to beat the market if you are realizing that on the first level, everybody's thinking the same thing, if you can get to the second level, you could potentially beat an inefficient market. Now, another most important thing that Big Marxy talks about is understanding risk. And there's three different chapters here all about risk. And it's a really big deal because if you think about investing in every sense of the word, it consists of only just one thing, and that's dealing with the future. And because none of us know exactly what's going to happen in the future, there's risk that is inescapable in everything we do. Effectively, because we're dealing with the future and the future is uncertain, the risk is just the uh, potential that the future will be different to what you expect. That's what risk is. And there are all different types of risks. 
And then there's all different ways of managing or controlling those risks. So that's what the next three most important things are about. So the first step consists of understanding it. The second step is recognizing when it's high. And then the critical final step is controlling risk. Now, when you're considering an investment, your decision should be a function of the risk entailed as well as the potential return. And because we don't like risk, investors are always bribed with high prospective returns to take these risks, to actually lure you out to do these risky things. Yeah, it's almost um, assumed in investing that if you take on more risk, you should get a higher return. Or if you're looking for a higher return, you need to take on more risk. So perhaps like uh, government-issued securities are meant to be super safe. So because there's less risk, you're going to get a lower return. But then stocks are more risky. Um, So because they're more risky and more uncertain, you should expect a higher return. So risk and return should go hand in hand. And what tends to happen in good times is people get too overconfident and they start saying things like riskier investments provide higher returns if you want more money the answer is just go out and take more risks yeah and when everyone's making a lot of money uh they probably don't see it as a risk they think yeah i'm i'm happy to take more risk because i'm making more money they probably don't they just probably forget about the risk anyway and then when that bubble pops they yeah think, oh, shit, i oh, took big- a lot of risk <laughs> <laughs> yeah bitcoin's at fifteen thousand. <laughs> shout out to my brother <laughs> <laughs> Mate, he, he jumped in. There's a lot of people who jumped in at the train. Oh, it's uh, it's not risky. People yeah. are just killing it. <laughs> oh, definitely, man. There's always risk. But the thing is, you, you got to think, if riskier investments reliable produce higher returns, they actually wouldn't be riskier in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mate, there was one thing I really liked in this section that he said, you know, if you think of a, a graph, uh, a little hard to explain over audio, but uh, on the horizontal axis you've got risk and on the vertical axis, you've got return. And so there's like a, a positive linear straight line going up and to the right, more risk equals more return. He says that a lot of people then think about uh, how do you get a higher amount of return from the same amount of risk, so going up. But he says it's also just as valid to get a same amount of return with a lower risk, so going to the left. So they're the most people just think about increasing their return based on the same amount of risk. But Howard says it's just as important or even more important to think about, okay, if I can get this return, how can I do it with the least risk possible? So that's an important thing to consider is always trying to reduce your risk. Mm, love it. So risks on in two ways, they can either affect you personally or they can affect others and present you with an opportunity to profit from all the other ones stuffing things up. Oh, Definitely. And he highlights a few different types of risk here that are true in the investing world, but also true in uh, a lot of other places around the world. So one is the risk of underperformance. So he says that the best investors tend to be the ones who stick most strongly to their approach. So they've found a way that works and they think, yep, this works, I'm going to stick with it and they do well. But of course, no approach works all of the time. You've always got risk. So if the way you're doing it provides you with a lot of return with a high amount of risk, there's also a big chance that for an extended period of time, you could also underperform as well because your strategy might not work. Now, the second risk he talks about is career risk. So there are circumstances where the people who manage the money have different interests to the people who, whose money they're managing. Yeah, it's this idea of misaligned incentives in that obviously the person with the whose money it is, they want the highest return possible. But the person who's managing the money, their incentives 
uh, not so much to make the client a lot of money, but they want to keep their job. So they're going to do things that may not be in the best interest of the client, but are rather in the best interest of themselves and keeping their job. So they're probably, you know, they might not, if someone in the, in the office has got a great deal and says you should get on board, they might not take it because it won't benefit them. They're not as interested in the gains that they won't get direct, you know, career recognition out of. But they're also probably very afraid of things that could lead to a big loss and a big loss could lead to them losing their job. Yeah, this comes up in a lot of different professions. Uh, we're going to be doing anti-fragile at some stage. I've been reading that recently. And he talks about some this in terms of so the profession of medicine. So, for doctors. So, if you say if you go and see the doctor, your best interest is to have as healthy, long future as you possibly can. Now, the doctor's incentive is to actually not do anything stupid as a doctor and lose her job. So, the healthiest thing for you personally in the long run might not be to take antibiotics so your actually gut microbe can actually improve so you're, you're, you're better situated to uh, deal with diseases in, in 10 or 20 years' time from now. But that's not the doctor's job. The doctor's job is to get you right now in, in the short term. So there's a huge risk sometimes in seeing the doctor and getting the simple solution. And another one a bit closer to home, I'm a structural engineer. This is probably something I shouldn't be saying on the potty, but <laughs> let her slip. So there was one example where the client hired us, a company, to, to design a building. Now, as an employee in my first year as a graduate, I saw things that weren't the best in terms of structural engineering. So if I had the client's best interest at heart, what I'd do is I'd go up to the client, give them a call straight away and say, look, some things are shoddy. You need to do things differently and potentially hire a different firm. But employees who are engineers, their interest is in their own career. Now, if they're going to call the client and say something like that, they're going to lose their job straight away. So there is a big risk in the client that they're probably not aware of a lot of the time in uh, who they're employing and what the people, the engineers are actually incentivized to do. Yeah, I think on that one as well, an idea that came to mind is that the client's interest is to pay as little as possible and they probably don't know everything that's involved in structural engineering. In fact, I'll say they definitely don't know. And so they might be putting the pressure on to you know cut corners and do it cheap and do it quick and do it easy. Uh, the best thing for the client is to pay as little as possible. The engineer obviously wants to design it safely, but they, they also don't want to say, no, we're going to have to charge you a lot of money. They don't want to risk losing that client because if they lose a big client, they're going to lose their job. So there's misaligned incentives there as well that, that you need to be careful of when there's, a, when there's a differentiation of incentives. Well done, mate. You just spelled out the whole engineering profession in Australia. <laughs> Congratulations. There's a few buildings falling down at the moment, isn't there? <laughs> Another type of risk is unconventionality and there might be some cases where the stewards of other people's money might be much better off of just turning over an average performance and not looking like a crazy idiot. If you think of the big short, what was his name again in it? Don't know, Matt. Don't know. But, you know, <laughs> everyone's seen the big short. He was a crazy idiot. And uh, before the whole subprime mortgage crisis happened, he looks like an absolute lunatic because mm. he was doing so something out of the ordinary. So, there was a big risk in him going out on a limb like he did. And when things turned and he looks like an absolute legend because he actually understood the risks in the right way. Yeah, sometimes rather than the risk of being unconventional, it might be just easier to just do what everyone else is doing and get an average sort of performance. So one might be if you're, you know, maybe you're uh, in a, a marketing agency 
and you could take a big risk on doing something different. You know, the safe thing would be to buy TV ads and magazine ads and you're probably not going to get fired for getting a TV ad because that's a safe thing that everybody else is doing. If you took a risk and did something different to everybody else, uh, maybe do, you know, Facebook targeted ads instead of TV ads, there's a chance that, you know, you might get a, a big result, but there's also a big risk that it might not work. And so maybe it's just easier to take that average performance that everybody else expects. Now, it's really counterintuitive, but the risk in that sense is actually doing what the consensus is doing just because you're just following the herd. And the least risky thing to do is the thing that's perceived as the most risky mm. in a lot of the cases. So not following the herd is uh, going to give you better performance a lot of the time. So that's what this chapter was all about. It was all about trying to get our head around risk, what risk actually is and some different types of risk. One thing he says it's really hard to do is to assess the accuracy of risk, uh, especially if it's just like a one-off thing. You know, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't work. Or say if you're, you know, you're watching the TV and the weatherman says there's a 70% chance that it will rain tomorrow. So if it rains, is he right or is he wrong? Is he 70% right and 30% wrong? Or, you know, it's very hard to assess the accuracy of risk. Yep, because investing always consists of dealing with the future and it's impossible to know anything about the future. So probable things fail to happen all the time and improbable things also happen all the time. If you think about the, the, the book we did, The Black Swan, where there can be some events that are extremely impactful but completely improbable, only looking prospectively. So the most important thing was to understand risk and we talked about the different types of things. Now, the most important thing is to recognize risk. So obviously, in, in theory, we've just had a bit of a taste of the different types of risks that are out there. Now, I guess in the real world, we need to start to recognize this risk in action. So recognizing risk often starts with understanding when investors are paying it too little heed and they're being too optimistic, paying too much for a given asset as a result. So, in other words, higher risk actually comes from higher prices. Yeah, it's sort of like, you know, as the price goes up and up and up, the risk kind of increases because I guess there's more room for it to, to drop in future. Absolutely. And it kind of comes back to this investor psychology again. And I think when every talks about investor psychology, you can apply the second level thinking concept. But it's kind of like a, a pendulum. So, if you've got a pendulum on the upward swing of the pendulum, people forget the truth of risk and embrace them to the excess and just forget all about it. And in these bull markets, people are saying, risk is my friend. The greater risk I take, the greater the return will be. I want more risk. I want more risk. So risk tolerance gets thrown out the window on the upswing of the pendulum. Yeah, people are happy to take more risk or they, they say or they think that they're happy to take more risk. And you know, as the pendulum's swinging and swinging more bullish and the price is going up and they think, yeah, great returns, give me more risk, I want more risk so I can get more and more returns, they sort of forget about risk entirely and they're just they're blinded to the risk. So if you think about if you want to actually pursuing a risk, that means you need a risk premium. So the return is a little bit higher than usual because you're taking a little bit of risk. Now, that higher than usual return is completely eliminated on this upswing of the, the pendulum because there's so many people crowding these so-called riskier investments. So you're actually um, better to be contrarian in some mm. sense of the word. Yeah, well, the risk as we said, because the price are going up, the pendulum swinging upwards, it's still going up in the sense that 
People are happy to take on more risk, but they're not really being compensated for that risk. So as we said, there should always be when risk increases, you should get higher returns. But people throw the idea of risk out the window in that they're taking on more risk, but they're not even being compensated for the risk that they're taking. And the interesting thing is whatever awards are presented for being risk averse and avoiding risks at all costs is that these awards are never given out in the good times, like the upswing of the bull market. Yeah, if you're controlling your risk, you really never see the positive results in good times. You know, you never, when everything's rosy, everything's safe, everything's happy, everyone's doing well, you never really get any benefits for controlling your risk. Because what is observable is loss. And loss generally happens only when risk collides with negative events. You can't see risk, but you can only see loss. And as I said, only when negative events come, you can actually see the loss. Yeah. He uses the analogy of like germs in that germs, they're invisible. Germs cause illness, but they're not illness themselves. So, if you are controlling for germs and most days you're fine in that you never see the positive results of controlling the germs. You only see the negative results. When you get sick, it's because of the germs. So, using that analogy, it's like you only really see the risk when you start to lose money. In the good times, you never see the benefits of controlling the risk. Or another analogy back to the structural engineering, if you design a building very poorly and there's a lot of risk in this actual building of collapse, you're not going to see it on the sunshine and lollipops days. You're actually going to see the loss when that earthquake comes or that one in a hundred year storm comes and blows that building way over. So the big problems of risk is loss and that only comes when these negative events actually comes and that's on the way down of this pendulum. So that's why this thinking about risk, it's a sort of a different way to think than obviously most people are thinking because most people ignore the risk when everything's going up and it isn't until they start to get destroyed when they realize, oh man, I was, it was so risky the whole time. Whereas Marx is saying you need to bring that risk recognition way to the front. So you need to be recognizing risk all of the time, not just when things go bad. So he loves Nassim Taleb, big Howard Marx here. He says that reality actually can be presented... Um, in a lot more vicious way than, say, an analogy of Russian roulette. So, as an example, you might be playing Russian roulette with a thousand chambers in it and then you have the first blow, you're okay. And then you keep going and then after about a blow, 100 event, you've had 100 okays. So, you actually start calling this thing a very low-risk endeavor. So, and you forget that actually what you're playing is Russian roulette um, with a thousand cans in it and eventually when you get the bad one you're actually going to be shot dead and i think this is the case for a lot of us when it comes to real life we are playing russian roulette with a lot of the risks we take like someone out there might be you know every year every monday tuesday and wednesday night eating maccas for dinner and all that and then they might have been doing that for the last 10 years and they might be thinking eating so unhealthily or smoking or or drug taking or anything like that is a riskless endeavor but in reality you're only actually going to see where the risks were the time when you do get hit with that huge illness and you get clobbered over the head like the analogy of the russian roulette right so a lot of our riskiest endeavors we actually don't smell the risk inside it as well as risk being the most important thing the most important thing is also combating negative influences so we want to be taking advantage for any you know inefficiencies, mispricings, misperceptions, mistakes of other people. This is what's going to give us superior performance. 
And what leads to these things is generally human emotion, which is interesting that he's sort of you know linking human nature into investing. But this, all these things that he lays out are what lead to mm. make potential for making money. If you think about what you said earlier, man, about at Yahoo at one stage was, I think you said $237. Then a few months later, it was something like $23. I mean, Yahoo in both times, they had some kind of intrinsic value, which uh, objectively, that's what it should be. But it's all these investor emotions and psychology that makes it think it's 10 times greater than it is and then it's 10 times less than it actually is. So it's understanding these human emotions where we can actually get an up on everybody else. Yeah, so obviously we both love uh, The Laws of Human Nature by Robert Greene and there's a good little combination here where he talks about greed, fear, the willing suspension of disbelief, envy, ego, all of these things and how they apply to the financial markets and because most people are the victims of this, if we can try to elevate ourselves above this or at least recognize what's happening, then we've got the potential for superior performance. Mm, And I think in all these cases, we'll we'll see it in ourselves. It's not something you just point the finger at everybody else. Oh, yeah. I mean, that first one, it's greed. So, there's nothing wrong with this little feeling to go out there and try and make money and make your life a little bit better. Um, The desire to gain, it's one of the most important things all about capitalism because your desire for that lifts the, the tide of all boats. But there's a big danger when this kind of turns into this greed. Yeah, the the, uh, the dictionary definition of greed that he drops in here is uh, inordinate or all-consuming and usually reprehensible acquisitiveness, especially for wealth and gain. And so, he's saying that it's all-consuming, like it's this very powerful force that overcomes a lot of rational thinking, a lot of risk aversion, a lot of common sense, prudence, caution, logic memory of painful past lessons and really it throws all trepidation out the window. If you've got a little bit of greed, you've got a little bit of taste of some big win coming in, you're probably going to ignore a lot of the downsides and just go all in and try to make some quick quick cash. Yeah, it's a very powerful force to just get rid of all your logic. Um, like it was obviously a big part that uh, pulled Bitcoin up to the prices it did and people just dismissed all the logic in Australia, like the, the property market just went to it just the highest in the world and Australia's in the highest private debt levels in the world mm. from what I understand or in the top two anyway. So, it's this feeling of greed which in one sense very similar to envy which we'll touch on later that makes us um, dismiss logic and do stupid things. Yeah, greed obviously when it's on the way up and when there's money to be made, you ignore a lot of the downsides and you just want to go all in and make a lot of money. The Almost the counterpart to greed is fear and obviously fear... No one wants to lose a lot. So, the fear is when it's going down the other side, you're going to panic sell. You're going to sell quickly because you don't want to have that painful loss. You want to get out very quickly. So, fear is probably going to lead to panic selling and it will probably drop even further than it should. Yeah, I'm sure back in 2008, me and you weren't investing at all back then, but there was a lot of people thinking the world is about to end, uh, all the banks are collapsing, get out, get out, get out. But in those specific moments, some of these things everyone was selling had an intrinsic value a little bit better than what everyone else thought. So, there was a big opportunity there. Yeah. So, greed and fear work together in that when everything's gone way up, because of greed, it's probably going to go up too high. And when everything's going way down, because of fear, everything's going to probably go down too low. So, as you know, a rational uh, investor, it's super important for you to recognize this. Firstly, not be a victim of it yourself. And then secondly, recognize when it's happening uh, in the general consensus. Now, number three is the willing suspension of disbelief. 
And this is the ability to dismiss logic, history, and all kind of time-honored kind of norms. Yeah, we generally... It makes people uh, accept these unlikely, almost preposterous things that are happening. So, generally, in financial markets especially, there is some kind of fundamental limits and we're willing to suspend our disbelief at times when it's going up. So, say for cryptocurrency, there was a fundamental limit as to the immediate adoption of cryptocurrencies versus fiat currencies in that there are fundamental limits to how popular cryptocurrency could be in that immediate time. But when it's going up and up and up, everyone is willing to ignore some of those facts and think, you know what? Forget about these fundamental limits. This is the train I'm going to get on. Let's jump in now. Yeah, exactly. A fundamental limit might be in something like stocks where you might have limits, which is that say the P on E ratio. It's how much profit a company gives, which dictates how much the actual stock price is. So, there's limits based on the earnings. You know, it's typically below 20 is a nice price. But when the markets are way too over-optimistic, it gets to the point of 50, 60, 70. Or in the case of Tesla, which I'm in, it's, uh, it's in negative and they actually aren't having <laughs> any <just> profits. <laughs> so, a lot of things or even in property, for example, you might have rental yields mm. that dictate the actual price of property. The yields might be, say, 1 or 2 or 3%. But it's when everyone dismisses logic, they forget about these fundamental prices and let it just creep up into um, ridiculous territories because they think that, th- uh, that these assets are so good that they can't actually be overpriced. Mm. Yeah, we fall, a lot of people fall victims to these uh, in these uh, manias, these waves of um, enormous potential. One little subset he's got here is uh, what he calls the, the belief in the silver bullet. So, it's this idea that there is some kind of silver bullet out there, some magic thing that is always going to work. And he says that the issue with the silver bullet or how we begin to believe in it is firstly, there's usually some kind of gem of truth in there. So, you might try the silver bullet. The first couple of times it starts working, you think, oh, shit, yeah, I'm onto something here. You keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it until eventually you realize that yeah. uh, there's no such thing. Yeah, no, we're all, we're all on the lookout for these silver bullets that, you know, they get rich quick schemes and all of that and um, you got slapped up <laughs> by, <laughs> by uh, big Greg Secker who was playing into into this territory. He understood this part of human nature that people can just dismiss logic and they just want to follow someone to make them rich. For you, you thought you were going to get rich doing Forex trading. Yeah. Um, you know, over a weekend, they just put someone up on the screen who looked a little bit dumber than you that you <laughs> thought you were smarter than. <laughs> Mate, they did, they did Played into well. your self-belief there as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Mate, there's the, the silver bullet that had the gem of truth. One thing he talks about is uh, a strategy called the Euro Bear and that the first few <laughs> hours of the day goes up a little, up a little, up a little and then there's a big crash and you can make money on the way down. And the, the, firstly, you know, there is a gem of truth in that you can uh, look for times where this did happen and you think, oh, yeah, this is the one but then you quickly realize it's not such a silver bullet after all. Yeah, we've all we've all chased silver bullets, man. Like I've always... And, and, the harsh reality is there isn't any silver bullet, especially when it comes to if you want to mm. get money. Unfortunately, a lot of the time, it takes a lot of just, just hard work and sticking at something to the end and um, getting scarce skills, which is we've covered in a whole lot of other books. So, that was the third one was the willing suspension of disbelief, You know, ignoring some uh, things that are fundamentally true and just making up your own decisions. The fourth thing is a tendency to conform to the view of the herd rather than resisting the herd. So, the consensus says it's going to go up, it's going to go up. So, you just jump on board and hope it goes up. Yeah, it's all uh, playing into that social influence of our irrationality. 
Number five is another big one, which is envy. Now, greed might be negative and it's always spurring people for more and more and more, but the impact's even stronger when we compare ourselves to other people. So, this is what he says is the most harmful aspects of human nature. So if we think back to Laws of Human Nature by Robert Greene, what we do when we go around, we're always looking around and comparing ourselves to other people and we're comparing our status. Yeah, you probably, you know, when um, the cryptocurrencies were booming like 18 months ago, probably crazy uncle told you how much money he made and old Betsy down the street who jumped in on it and you you just think, oh man. And then you, the envy kicks in. You think, oh, if these suckers can do it, I can do it too. And then you start to become a little bit irrational. Or another one that he talks about was like there was this non-profit institution between 1994 and 1999, they'd made 16% per year on average, which is a bloody good result. But they were pissed off because their peers were making 23% on average. Mm. And then when the, the tech bubble burst from 2000 to 2003, they were making 3% a year and they were super happy because their peers had lost money. Yeah. So, it's like so irrational that you can be pissed off making 16% but then super happy making 3%. And it all ties into that idea of envy and comparing yourself to others. Yeah, envy is uh, one of the most painful emotions. It's something we hate to admit because if you admit to being envy, that means you're admitting that someone else is doing Mm. better than you. And the sixth one is ego. So, obviously, it can be enormously challenging to remain objective in the face of some cold hard facts. Ego, we all like to think of ourselves as really good or probably the best, but sometimes when uh, a bit of realism kicks in, it can be really be really hard to take a little little hit to the ego. So, in the end, we need to really look at all these psychological urges that we have in our human nature, which are going to make us do really stupid things and learn to see them for what they are and being able to take a little step back and having the courage in yourself to actually resist. And so, another most important thing is knowing what you don't know. And he kicks off with some, some sick quotes at the start here, first by John Kenneth Galbraith. There are two classes of forecasters, those who don't know and those who don't know that they don't know. So, yeah, implicit in that quote is we're all ignorant. It's just that some of us don't know it. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know shit. There's, the whole world is very complex, uh, well beyond our understanding almost obviously. So, there's no way we could actually really grasp it in its full complexity. Another quote he's got here, it's frightening to think that you might not know something more frightening to think that by and large the world is run by people who have faith that they know exactly what is going on. Big Amos Versky there, that's a, that's a sick quote. And another quote by Henry Kaufman says, there are two kinds of people who lose money, those who know nothing and those who know everything. So, it's obviously very dangerous to get caught up in the idea that you know exactly what's going on, you know what's happening right now, you know what's going to happen in the future. That's definitely the worst place to be in, especially in investing. Mark says he's firmly convinced that A, it's hard to know what the macro future holds and B, and fewer people possess superior knowledge of these matters that can regularly be turned into investor advantage. Yeah, there's really no way to predict the future accurately every single time and consistently on a regular basis. So, really, it's super important. In fact, you know, obviously, the most important thing is to just admit that you don't know with 100% certainty what is going to happen. You need to admit that you don't know. So, many of people's forecasters out there really just extrapolate past experience of what the things that have happened in the past, but they're really of little value. 
So just as forecasters usually assume a future that's a lot like the past, so do the markets which price in the continuation of previous history. So thus, if the future turns out to be like the past, it's unlikely that big money will ever be made because it's already been priced in. So if you need proof of this in terms of the real world, you need to ask yourself how many forecasters accurately predicted in the middle of this big boom of 2006, 2007, how many accurately predicted a massive downturn at the end of 2007, 2008? Yeah, I know there's a few that we followed. You had uh, Steve Keen who was on this podcast. He predicted the fall of the profit of everything then. You had Peter Schiff. Anyone who listens to Big Peter is a big pessimist out there. He was right about that. There's another Harry Dent. Robert Kiyosaki. Robert Kiyosaki. He, gets it right. he was right. There's a whole bunch of people who are spot on, mate, about 2007 and 2008. Okay, but then we've got to also ask the next question. Out of the people who got it right, how many of those people after the big crash also accurately predicted that, hey, 2009, 2010, there's going to be a turnaround and there's actually going to be a pretty healthy year couple of years of growth. It was the biggest bull market of all time <laughs> that 10 years after. Not one of them predicted that. They all um, continued their prediction that the whole world was going to end. So what he's saying is there might be people who are just inherently pessimistic and there's some people who are inherently optimistic, but no one's right all of mm. the time. Yeah, he says that you know forecasters can be right some of the time, but nobody is right all of the time. So that's a good capper for the book, man, knowing what you don't know and just um, admitting ignorance. Mm. So, there was a lot of most important things in there and because they're all important, uh, there really is no number one most important thing but there's a, a whole bunch of stuff there to think about if you're interested in investing but also then extrapolating this philosophy and applying it to all different areas of life because there are a whole bunch of important things to think about here. Yeah. 